This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. I'm going to um, try to say something about the Socratic method. It's a little bit daunting. First, I notice I have a number of people here who are philosophers, well equipped to use the Socratic method. I have some experts on Greek philosophy here. Um, and I'm also, in a sense, doing something very unsocratic, <laughs> because giving a lecture, you know, or a talk on the Socratic method is a bit of a contradiction in terms. But I'm going to hopefully um, say some things about the Socratic method and then try to show you in action <laughs> um, how the Socratic method works. Um, and I saw in my little blurb that I gave. I made the claim that the Socratic method is actually one of the best things in philosophy. And I really believe that. And I hope I can um, convince you that there's something really um, important for teaching, for learning, for um, being a human being uh, that we can find through using this method. So um, I'll say, I'm not going to say anything really about the historical figure of Socrates, but I will say something that I think is important, which is that Socrates believed that his method could be engaged in by anyone, not simply by elites. You didn't need to know a specialized professional language or a special vocabulary to engage in the practice of critical reflection. Anybody right, who was capable of ordinary human reasoning would be capable of engaging with this method. So it doesn't depend on anything technical or special. And it takes as its departure not only kind of ordinary human capacity to reason, but also everyday starting opinions. And for people who've read Socrates, he tends to start with the sort of everyday views that people have, like the view um, in the Republic that um, justice requires returning what one owes, or that um, evil should be met with evil, which was a widely accepted view of his time. And then to show that if we ask questions about these views we have together, um, we can be led by our own reasoning to reject these views and to alter them. Is that getting in the way? Okay. <laughs> and, um, and what's important, if you read um, Socrates as, dis as written up by Plato, the mode of this is dialogue, not monologue. That's why I say it's a little bit of a contradiction to give a talk about the Socratic method. Um, we engage with our views and in the process of that, we not only gain knowledge, but Socrates thought we sort of morally reform ourselves. And so, I mean, the, the kind of high, high ambition of the method um, is a kind of moral reform that you yourself criticize and subject your deepest values to, re to, to reflection and the pressure of of everyday reasoning to reform them in such a way that you figure out what you really care about. And Socrates thought famously or infamously that if you engage in this, not only will you understand better what 
um, truth is or justice is, but you'll be a happier person. <laughs> And I'll leave that to, uh, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> the proof is in the pudding. A lot of unhappy philosophers. But anyway, um, okay, so I think there are four key components of the Socratic method. Um, the first is that it depends on the active participation of everybody. So when you're in a classroom trying to use the Socratic method to get students to challenge and think through their beliefs, it's really important that the students in the classroom are engaged and are participants. Nobody can do the Socratic method for you. Um, uh, and so the idea that there's an answer from the instructor to a question, so the question of what justice is, that the teacher is gonna tell you um, what justice is, is inimical to the Socratic method. The Socratic method depends on you yourself engaging with a quest to figure out what justice is by your own reasoning and under scrutiny and pressure um, to come up with an answer. So nobody can do the Socratic method for you. So that's the first thing. You've got to have an active class. Sometimes people think that means it can only be done in a small classroom, but I actually think that's not the case. That you can, you know, the size, although it's daunting, you can get people in even a very large venue to engage in critical reflection. The second part of the component of the Socratic method is that it really depends on the sincerity of the participants. So it doesn't work if in a classroom students give answers that are just opinions, right, or just views. They have to give their views, the ones they're willing to stake something on, right? So for the Socratic method to work, it's got to be when you're asked what justice is, you don't just parrot an answer you don't believe, but you give an answer that you're willing to live by, that you're willing right, to um, stand by, and that if it's refuted, right, part of your own life is going to be indicted by that refutation. So it's quite demanding. It really involves, you have to not only have a classroom of participants, but they've got to be willing um, to sincerely engage with the issues. And the third, um, I think, is, which is connected to this, is it doesn't work unless there's a certain amount of moral courage on the part of the participants. Because um, subjecting our own values to critical inquiry, where, which really matters, right, and which, where we could really wind up overturning what we believe, takes a certain amount of courage. If you hide, if you're tempted to hide behind the professor or an answer or a convenient opinion, the method doesn't work. And so um, this one quote I'll give is from uh, the Gorgias where Socrates says, and this is a quote, do not take what I say as if I were merely playing for the subject of our discussion and on what subject should a man of slight even slight intelligence be more serious namely the question of what kind of life one should live. So unless you're willing to take your own values seriously and subject them to criticism, the method doesn't work. So very demanding pedagogical tool. And fourth, so we've got um, uh, it's um, uh, 
the, the three components, active participation, sincerity, moral courage. The fourth is there's no guarantees that this method is going to substitute for what is taken away. <laughs> so um, sometimes people talk about the Socratic classroom as one where there is productive discomfort because it might be that in questioning, I've knocked away a lot of what you believe, but I don't have a preset solution to put in its place. And so for a lot of students, when you ask people to question their deepest beliefs, that's scary enough. But when you tell them there's no guarantee here that after questioning, you're going to find a comfortable place to retreat to, that's even more scary. <laughs> um, and so it could be, and here's um, uh, another, actually, I'm going to give a second quote. Uh, Socrates says in the um, uh, quote, you act though I profess to know the answers to the questions I asked you and could give them to you if I wished. It isn't so. I inquire with you because I myself don't have knowledge. So again, kind of a very scary idea for lots of us, not only right, is there no set answer, but the professor themselves is a fellow inquirer in the process. And that partly means as a fellow inquirer in the process, the professor is also vulnerable to error and contradiction and themselves has to be subject to criticism. Um, now, you might think this idea that everything can be subjected to critical inquiry, that um, we're all co-inquirers um, all the time is a bit overstated. And some people think, well, this is, can't be right because after all, there are some things that are beyond doubt, right? There's some things we don't have to subject to critical inquiry. I know the Holocaust never happened, right? That's a fact. I don't need to, you know, I mean, this, what is Socratic inquiry going to tell me here, right? And so people think this method is, you know, it's overblown. Socrates can't really think we've got to question everything, right? There's some things that are beyond question. Now, I think actually there's a sense in which Socrates does think everything is open to question and that he's right to do it. And I think that even though I think that the Holocaust didn't happen is a false statement and nothing would get me to see that as a uh, true statement. And I think here, I mean, there are two points, I think, to emphasize. One is, um, even when we can't be mistaken, first of all, we, there, even when we can't be mistaken about the facts, we can learn more about the facts by subjecting them to critical inquiry. So the first thing is even when you think you know something, you can actually sometimes learn more by looking at it again in a different way. So that's, I think, one point. Lots of things, and indeed the history maybe of humanity has been lots of things people thought were facts and beyond reproach and not subject to criticism, like that there are natural differences between people that you know, justify different stations in life, became you know, looked at in new ways. 
So first is we should have some skepticism, even of our um, rock bottom truths. And the second, although this is not a Socratic point in the sense of Socrates, but I think it's in keeping with Socrates, is a point John Stuart Mill made, which is he says something like, um, teachers and students go asleep at the wheel when there is no enemy in the field. Meaning if you don't have to, if you're not challenging, if you just have a view and it's never criticized, you don't even really know why you have it. You don't even know what it means and what's at stake. And so in that sense, um, I think Socrates is right to think anything, everything can be subjected to critical inquiry. Okay, so there are four features, and as I say, it's a pretty scary um, a method of teaching and not to be undertaken, again, in Socrates' words, very lightly. Um, I think it's very powerful. I think anybody who has ever tried to reflect on, men, on their judgments and, and see whether or not the, all the implications of their judgments are ones they could live by and finds that just in ordinary common sense, there are lots of contradictions. There's lots of judgments that seem to flow out of things I believe that I can't live with. Um, I think that um, it's a scary thing to do and it's uncomfortable. And one danger is because it's uncomfortable, um, it's not stable in the classroom. So that because it's so demanding, some students will just turn off. I'm not ready to question my values. I'm not ready. You're asking too much of me. This is a class. I need a good grade, right? Just tell me what I have to write. So it's, it can be very demanding. And when you have high demands, you have a danger of exit <laughs> from a lot of people that you want to engage. There's a so that's a danger on the student side is the students will opt out. The danger on the faculty side is um, you see your students are uncomfortable and you see them struggling with something and you feel like, I oh, just put them out of their misery. Okay, you know, freedom means, you know, this. Locke was right. Um, so there's a tend, it's very hard to maintain the kind of humility as a faculty member that the method is really asking because it's asking you not to assume the mantle right, of, you know, the expert, but to see yourself as a co-inquirer. Um, and I think these are really dangerous uh, pitfalls. But there's probably an even more uh, worrying pitfall, and it's that one I want to um, kind of close my opening remarks and then try to get you to do some Socratic reasoning here. And that's that um, often I have found in my own teaching, so I teach, I mean, I say that the Socratic method is a kind of method of moral improvement. Well, it's no surprise, I think, that because I teach courses in moral philosophy and political philosophy. So this is the stuff we're doing all the time. We're thinking about justice. We're thinking about punishment. We're thinking about justification. I can ask questions of my students to get them to push and to see the limitations of the different views that they're tempted to. And the problem is when you do this too much, people think it's all a game, right? It's all a game because anything can be subjected to questioning, right? You think that um, 
you know, killing people is always wrong. Well, you know, here's a counterexample, right? And actually philosophers, for those of you who've taken some advanced philosophy courses, know that philosophers love to make up extremely ridiculous examples, right? <laughs> that never could happen, but that show that, you know, when you say never, you know, killing is always wrong. Well, or, you know, intentional killing is always wrong. Well, here's a clever counterexample. And so I've found for myself that there's a dilemma in using the method, which is that it's not fair to ask students to engage in this practice if you are not willing to do it yourself. And to do it yourself means just like you want the students exposed, right? in exposing their values for critical scrutiny, you have to be willing to expose your values. So I used to, as a Socratic professor, never tell students anything about what I believed. Right? It's not the point of the professor to preach in the classroom. Don't tell them you know, where you come down. Teach them these theories of justice. Show all the problems and contradictions. Get them you know, to reason, but don't reveal your own views because that's illegitimate. But what I found is, after doing this for many, many years, a lot of my students came out of my classes not you know, w wise and endorsing their values in the you know, light of their, it, but basically thinking it's a game, right? Philosophers are good at playing the game. No matter what I say, they can always find an objection. And so I've learned that I have to show my students within, you know, conscious of the dilemmas of pre not wanting to preach, that I also am willing to do this, that I'm willing to expose myself, that I'm willing to say, okay, there are four different, you know, competing theories about justice that are, you know, sort of dominant theories in society, and each of them has problems, each of them is incomplete, but here's where I come down in the end, and here's why I come down here. But there are other ways to come down so that the students could come back to me and say, you say you come down here, but look, there are these problems with the view that you endorse. And I've got to be willing to explain why I still, in the light of criticism, come down here, because we have to come down somewhere, but recognize and help them to recognize that that doesn't mean I'm the authority on what view of justice they should adopt. I'm the, view, I'm the authority on what view of justice I should adopt, or maybe I'm the authority. I try to be the authority on that, but I'm not, you know, I'm not the authority on their views. So I think the challenge, if you want to use a method that gives up the idea of a fixed point you know, that all views are tending to, doesn't have easy answers, doesn't, in terms of authority relations in the classroom, puts everybody, it's not that I'm on the exact same plane with everybody in the class in every dimension. Obviously, I know, you know, studied and read and written about a lot of these issues. But from the point of view of moral inquiry, I'm on the same plane. Um, and that can be a very scary thing. And I think the dilemma is to walk that, to get students to engage in this practice, to risk something, to see you model risking, and then to be willing to do this seriously, because maybe we won't all be happy at the end, but hopefully we'll have a better sense of what we really value, what we want to live by, and why we want to live by it. 
So I'm going to stop um, now and take a cup, see if there are questions just on this, and then I thought I'd try to do a Socratic exercise with you in the room. Yeah, Elizabeth. Is it compatible with a graded classroom? So there are these, does the Socratic professor use PowerPoint? Do they, <laughs> can they give grades? Actually, I try, I've tried PowerPoint. I find it doesn't fit that well. Um, I think that, so it depends on what you're grading. And if what you're, I mean, I think it is compatible in this way because you're asking a lot from students, right? And some of the students opt out and do the easy thing. And there should be, you know, if they're participants, they're not doing what they're supposed to do. So, I mean, really the grading is about engaging in the exercise and trying to engage as well as you can in the exercise. If they're not, then they're, I mean, so the, the one thing, I think there's, you know, you can use grades, but participation becomes a much um, greater part of grading then if you think, I mean, you can't do the Socratic method on a multiple choice test, right? It doesn't, I mean, now, I don't think the Socratic method is the only thing you do in a classroom. So it might be legitimate still to have a multiple choice test. But the, you know, what you're really trying to get somebody to do is to master a way of, of critical reflection and reasoning and, and bring that critical reflection and reasoning to bear on some material. Um, and if they can't do that, or don't do that, or refuse to do that, or don't do it well, I think it's probably um, okay to grade them. Although, the, again, there are dangers in grading. Yeah? How do you see Socratic method working in science courses? Um, good question. Uh, so I said it's easy for me to endorse the Socratic method as a mode of teaching because the material I deal with, have the students read, really is about how should we live. Um, and if you're teaching chemistry, it's not clear that the organic chemistry is about how we should live. However, <laughs> um, you know, it depends what you think even education in the sciences is about. Because to the extent that you're trying to get students to memorize material, not a good method to the sense that you're really trying to have students understand the kind of reasoning that goes on in science, right? So um, what are causal connections? How is this method working? What's the alternative? What's being left out? What goes on in abstraction? How do we decide what categories to abstract? Those are all questions that I think in a, you know, a science class are, certain, are legitimate. I think if you're teaching a course um, you know, in physics, you're getting people to think about the world in a certain way. It's legitimate to ask, okay, well, how, you know, what's the connection between this way of thinking about the world and the world? Um, I probably sound like I'm turning every course into a philosophy course, and maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's true. That I think there, so what I would say is, I don't think this is the only method that um, has validity in the classroom. I think it's a piece of something we need more of in the classroom. Uh, but I think there are other methods of pedagogy that work for other purposes, like you want somebody to master some material that they have to memorize, and that's, you know, you're teaching a language. But I think there's always room for critical reflection on the practice of um, 
of a discipline and a body of knowledge. There's always a way of saying, well, what's left out here by the way we're thinking about this? Are we leaving something out? And um, there is here a mode of encouraging participation in the process of finding out the answer that I think you, anybody can use for any subject matter so that it's not just um, students falling asleep, having a tape recorder in their pocket, and then you know, when they go home, you know, study for the test, listen to the tape recorder. Yeah. I have two quick suggestions <coughs> mm -hmm. for uh, using Socratic method in the science courses. <coughs> One of them is history of science. If you, there are times before consensus was reached when these principles were very controversial and argued one way or another. And that can challenge students to understand why they're believing what they believe in science. And the other thing are, are Piaget-type puzzles. <laughs> By Piaget-type puzzles, you mean? Uh, I mean presenting them with, uh, with something that doesn't quite fit what mm -hmm. they believe. Mm -hmm. uh, and they've got to work out, and it's a specific puzzle, and you've got to work out the solution. So mm -hmm. It's like the paper and pencil test for PSAs. Yeah. Well, I mean, I absolutely agree that um, w that the history of science is a great way of showing that things that seem obvious <laughs> um, have a way of being turned on their head, and that we ought to know something about that history when we think about our own science and what we're learning. Linear. Just another suggestion along the same lines. If you're presenting current research, then you might provoke this sort of discussion about experimental design of some particular current paper that where you could get the same kind of critical reflection going. Yeah. The very first philosophy course I ever took, one of the things I really remember was that the professor in fact gave a multiple choice test. And and it worked splendidly because of he was, he was actually willing to change uh, his answers, or, you know, if you could defend your previously wrong answer. And it really uh, inspired this sort of dialogue, in, in, in a sense, with the, the student with the wrong answer taking the professor's place and having this kind of mm -hmm. interchange back and forth. And I, th I thought it was actually one of the best features. You know, when I first saw it, I thought, come on, you got to be kidding. And uh -huh. it really. <laughs> <laughs> right, so if done right, right, it can be right. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, Don, and then I'm going to. The Socratic method, how do you bring in the views and opinions of others not in the room uh, without that risking coming across as fact or dogma? Um, <laughs> you tear them to shreds, so then I can't be fact or dogma. Um, you know, I think so. Again, the sincerity really matters. And so one of the things I try to get my students to do is, I mean, there's the views that they have around the table. Then there's the views that we're reading. And I always ask, take this view from the up from the inside and see what it would mean to hold this view and live by it. And what would that mean, right? So take the view that's absent, that isn't, you know, maybe not being represented. I mean, often, you know, you'll take, um, there's what's called playing devil's advocate, right? So you take a view that's not represented in the room and you're forcing people to think critically from the point of view of the devil. You know, don't just dismiss this. Don't rule it out of, the, of bounds or out of the class. Bring it in here and let's see if we understand how we could answer this perspective, even if it's a perspective that right now none of us holds. Off, I mean, that's, again, the game part of this is often you find when you take 
the play the devil's advocate, you wind up convincing everybody because they're looking at you as the truth. <laughs> and so if you've suddenly said, there's a very famous, uh, is a Gary Trudeau cartoon where the professor who's noticing the students are just scribbling everything down uncritically starts saying, black is white, you know, uh, up is down, scribble, 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 you know, democracy is fascism, scribble, scribble. <laughs> so the danger is you bring the devil into the classroom and <laughs> so you have to be very careful. Um, let me try to, oh, go ahead. I, I kind of see this bringing stuff from outside of the room as being the same as using a PowerPoint presentation, which presents talking points for background mm -hmm. on a discussion. But at, at the same time, you know, if you don't, if you restrict an analysis of some issue or topic or reflection strictly to what's in the room, you're leaving an awful lot out. Right. So on one, in one way, first of all, I think you're leaving out less than you think in some of these areas because it turns out when you actually probe the students, there is a wide diversity of views on some topics. But you're also gaining so, you know, something even when the students all agree because you're subjecting that point of common agreement to critical reflection. And often that opens up other perspectives that aren't in the classroom when you're doing that. But I also, I mean, I do think it's, it's fine to take views from outside and bring them in. The danger is to, that you won't do justice to the views when you bring them in. And so you've always got to be careful that you're bringing it in. I mean, that's the thing about hypotheticals. I'm going to give you some hypotheticals. But I like and dislike is, you know, on the, you could say, well, supposing you believed X. And X is something nobody <laughs> in their right mind would ever believe. I mean, you can, get, you can bring a view in, but then it can also become a parody. Um, and so you want to, uh, I think, the, the, maybe the way to put this is, I think the way you start is with what's in the classroom and what are the kind of everyday takes people have on the material you're reading. But the point is not to end there. It's to start there. Where you end up is philosophy. I mean, where you end up is critical reflection and openness to points of view that were never part of the classroom to begin with. Because you are led yourself by criticizing your own values and views to views that weren't on the table before. Um, all right, so I thought I would use some really bad philosophy examples to just elicit a little bit of Socratic method. And I beg my philosophy colleagues to just close their eyes, close their ears. Okay, so um, I want you to think about two ve very, very distinct views about our moral reasoning that are parts of our moral reasoning. And then I want, you to, I want to show you that each of those parts can be subjected to problems. So the first I'm going to do by thinking about a problem philosophers call the trolley problem. <laughs> the eyes already rolling. How many people have heard of the trolley problem? Why a few people have heard. Not that many. Okay, so here's the problem. Hypothetical, not a real trolley, a metaphysical trolley. So you're, a tro you're driving a trolley down a road, I mean down a um, track, and the brakes fail. There's absolutely nothing you can do to stop. You can't warn anybody. You can't stop the train. It goes along. You notice that ahead of you on the tracks are five people 
lying workmen on the tracks. They have um, ear devices on. They're listening to the radio. They can't hear you. You can't ring the you know bell. So you can't. Um, you're going to just hit them. However, you notice that if you swerved the train, there's one person on the track that you would hit should you swerve the train. So do nothing. The train goes forward. Five people die. Swerve it. One person dies. That's the only two choices on the table. What should you do? Risk. <laughs> Think. Yes. Is the person on the the one person is is that person also wearing ears? Yes. Stuff so they can't. Can't, hear you? can't be right. Philosopher's example. Can't warn them. You're not related to anybody on the track. They're not people you know, right? So it's do nothing. Hit five. Swerve. Hit one. Swerve. You'd swerve. Why? Because then you would cause the least amount of harm. Okay. So here's a principle, right? Um, cause the least amount of harm. Um, better to save five lives, or, or better to lose one life than five lives. How many people agree with that? How about the people who disagree? Who disagrees with it? Anybody? Yeah? So? Doesn't deserve to be killed that way. Was not really on the original path of the. Ah. So he was lucky, and so we should, because he, the train wasn't going to hit him. Those people were unlucky, so do they deserve to be hit? <laughs> yeah? I, I think there are two types of decisions. Uh, there's the one decision of allowing the train to continue on its path which isn't quite the same as allowing the train to swerve. I think there's more volition in allowing the train or just choosing to make the train swerve. Right. So there yeah, may so be you have to make a, choice. A, a level of, right. I mean, somebody can say that they're both choices that are equivalent, but I think changing the path is a, is a there's more uh, impact in that choice. Okay, so it's true. I mean, in some sense, you're doing, you know, you're doing something in both cases, but a different kind of doing one is looks more active. Yeah. So is the single person also a workman? And did all ah. of these people, like, did they know that a train was coming? The deserving or undeserving uh, poor. Let's just say that, you know, they're all equivalent. <laughs> and, you know, let's, I'm going to change the example for a second. Supposing it were a thousand workers, or you could swerve and hit one. Does that matter? I mean, to the people who were skeptical, who didn't say, yeah, you know, better to, you know, only one person to die than five. What if it's a thousand to one? Does that matter? Anybody want to say you should not swerve? Do you want to say you shouldn't swerve? So it's, you go straight, a thousand people are mowed over, you swerve, one person dies. And, you know, again, nobody deserved to be on the tracks. They're, let's say they're all just by bad luck on the track that day. Was there a hand over there? I was just going back to the five on the track. Mm -hmm. I personally would do my best to save as many lives as I could. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you were to swerve, is there any possibility that you're going to injure the people on the train when you swerve? Uh, no. <laughs> That's the example. <laughs> right, so the example's just forcing you 
to think about a, a moral principle, right? And the, I mean, people have raised some questions about it, but the moral principle that looks attractive in this case is, you know, it's somebody put it's better, right, to uh, for one per that only one person died than five people die. It's better to uh, minimize death might be a way, minimize avoidable death could be a principle. Um, uh, uh, do the most harm, make the most people the most happy. Certainly five people are going to be a really happy if you swerve and, you know, not that happy if you don't swerve and one person would be really happy. So it looks kind of an attractive principle where you're going to... Well, if you just go straight, then you're a victim of circumstances. However, if you swerve and kill that one person, you're a killer. Okay, so because that's the intuition that there's something different here, but how different it is, right? Because, of course, you know, you're responsible for not swerving as much as you're, you know, because you do have the choice to swerve, right? So somebody could say, well, but you could have swerved, and because of you, I mean, so one way to think about it is how, what would you say to the families of the people who are killed? You know, would you say, well, I didn't do anything. I mean, I could have sworn, but I didn't do anything. You know, and, and should the families think of that as a legitimate excuse? Well, you didn't want to do anything. Okay, so you killed all five. Fine, yeah, I see the rationale. Yeah, anyway, so, so this, the example sort of puts pressure on you to think about um, you know, sort of the issue about the numbers, and the numbers really matter. Right? The, morally, they really matter. It matters that you know, it's five, and that's why I asked if it's a thousand. There's going to be some number that people are going to tend to say, look, well, if it's a thousand to one, of course, swerve. Yes, you know, your hands are a little dirty, but I mean, thousand people, you could do nothing. What are you going to tell those thousand families? Okay. So hold that example. Another philosopher's example, the doctor's office. It turns out you're a doctor. You run an emergency room. And you have five people upstairs who are dying. One needs a heart, one needs a lung, one needs a kidney, liver. Um, what's the other, is there any other organ? Whatever, five organs are needed. <laughs> and um, Lanier walks in to the doctors. I'm the doctor. He walks into my office. He's got a scratch on his you know, arm. He wants to, he's worried about an infection. I do some tests, and I notice, lo and behold, he's an exact match for the five people I have upstairs. Right? Now, we've just said the numbers matter, right? Five better than one die than five die. And now I've got Lanier here, and he matches. So what do I do? Do I apply the principle? And if I don't apply the principle, why don't I apply the principle? Hmm. What if it were a thousand organs that he could donate? <laughs> what should I think about that? I've just given a moral principle. I said, you know, it seemed pretty good. I was willing to live by it. Am I going to take him apart? Yeah. I think now you have to start thinking about, you know, uh, a little bit more about the people that you're going to save or, or kill. So the five people upstairs, that are, that are suffering like organ failure, you know, if they have had a longer life than the guy that's got a scratch on his arm, well, maybe, you know, 
they, they have they have they have had they have had uh, more of a chance to mm -hmm. to live. Okay, so, so let's say they're younger than linear. Yeah. <laughs> because of dilemmas like this, society has put certain categories in special categories, and those are referred to as professionals. And professionals have codes of ethics, and in this uh -huh. case, the code of ethics is primum non nocere, above all else, do no harm. Mm -hmm. And that is the basis of the professionalism of medicine, and therefore, we can't touch linear. Yeah. All right, but of course, this is a philosopher's example. <laughs> and you might think so, let's not take the exact code of ethics, but we did have a kind of moral code in the train case, which was minimize harm. Right? And better that one person dies than five people die. It's a minimum, minimize harm principle. And it looks like I'm a doctor. I've got some kind of minimize harm principle. Lanier walks in, five, one, do the math. How many people would, how many people think the right thing to do in this case is to redistribute Lanier's organs? <laughs> Does anybody? But a lot of you said five and one. So why is this a different case? Yeah. Are the five people guaranteed of dying if they don't get his organs? It's a philosopher's example. Yes, they'll <laughs> die. So here's the choice. You either redistribute his organs and save the five, or you let him walk out and the five die. So it's exactly par looks parallel in one way to the case of the trolley. Right, so you've got the numbers, and we're asking, is the numbers the only thing that matters? Right, and we had this strong intuition, but minimize harm, minimize harm. Yeah? I think it's also important to know, like, the crossover of, like, the legal system with our moral code of ethics, and um, one, the legal system probably trumps the other, even on a subconscious level. So with the train example, it's unlikely that we're going to be persecuted, whereas with this other example, the chances are that um, the doctor would be persecuted and you know, probably have, be, have life in prison. And maybe there's going to be a doctor out there who would be willing to take on that risk <coughs> into their own life, and maybe that doctor would be willing to choose the five people over one. Okay, so that's a, you know, you're giving a practical answer right, like there are consequences, but again, I'm going to push back as a philosopher and say, well, let's think those away, because maybe we have the wrong laws. You know, so for the moment, let's think it away and ask, in, if we don't worry about getting caught, right, do we have any other reason not to redistribute Linear's organs besides the fact that we might get punished if we did it, or we would violate a professional code of ethics if we did it? The question is, why shouldn't we do it? Maybe it's the right thing to do, and we just live in a society that's, I don't know, has a problem about this. Yeah. <laughs> well, it seems that one example, that the trolley itself, is more circumstantial, and this one has a kind of an existential quality in that, you know, once you start doing this kind of thing, then it could just open up the possibility for it to happen again and again. Where I mean, that one circumstantial, uh -huh. you know, it's, it's a delimited experience of needing to switch the track. Mm -hmm. But this 
and I'm not, I can't quite articulate why it's more existential, but it seems like there's some dimension like that, that it, it moves into that territory. Okay, so, I mean, there's a couple of things going on in your response. One thing you might think, well, there's a numbers issue really hidden in your response, because if you think trolleys don't happen that often, but when you add up, somehow there's going to be so many cases of this, and maybe there'll be some mistaken cases of it. Maybe it won't always be the case that the five gets saved and lots of people will be, I mean, so maybe there's some hidden worry. That's one. Or maybe, again, this existential, some different attitude that somebody has to take about the two cases in order to carry them out. Yeah. Volunteered to give up all of his organs. So, you know, you can't just arbitrarily say, I'm going to kill him and take his organs to save these other people, and we haven't even talked about that. I mean, that's a big issue. It's a big you, know, issue. Arbitra you can't arbitrarily make those kinds of decisions for someone else. <laughs> but remember, on the train, right, I'm not asking, I'm not calling out to the one person on the track and saying, is it okay? <laughs> you know, we're going to, right? They're not consenting. So if we didn't ask, we thought it was okay to swerve without asking their consent. You're going to end up killing somebody. You're one okay. somebody or five somebodies. But in this particular case, I mean, he just came in for a scratch. <laughs> He's not, you know, he didn't think that you might have an ulterior motive. <laughs> so one element that looks different that I think your comment is getting at is in the trolley case, if I swerved and there was nobody on the track, that I it would be fine. Actually, that would be the ideal. I'd, I'd meet the criterion. I don't need the person to die. I don't need to kill them in order to save the five. But in the doctor's office case, there's some difference here because I need Lanier to die in order to save the five. Now, that doesn't tell us that, I mean, it just points that there's a difference. It doesn't tell us that this difference should have a lot of more weight or how much more weight, but there it does look like there's something different in those cases, as you suggested. Yeah. Or uh, the of the doctor, I think many people will start changing their minds, uh, and the organs are gone. <laughs> Interesting. So, friends of the doctor. <laughs> um, okay, so you might, but, but on the other hand, if that's right, now first there's a question whether that would be, a, you know, people are justified in doing that, and whether when you subject them to critical pressure, they would accept other people doing that as well. But there's also a question, would that same reasoning apply in the trolley case? Because you could imagine, right? Um, it's my relative who's the one person, right? They're the one. Now, should that matter? Was there, yeah? Five people are dying of natural causes in the end, and the one person is not. Mm -hmm. And there is the, you know, the premeditation of one, the other one's an accident about to happen in any case. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, of course, um, die, I mean, it's true that they're dying, and you could say it's, there's natural causes, maybe, let's say, assume they're natural causes, but we do intervene to save people who are dying of natural causes, right. Okay, so again, that, you know, might be that there's something here about the fact that Lanier is, his death is necessary for the um, saving the lives, which is different than the trolley case. Yeah. 
people who are standing in the tracks have at some level accepted a certain risk of being hit by a train. Oh. It's not a high risk, but mm -hmm. just like when you get in a car, you know there's a chance you could be in a car accident. You could have a society where every time you walk into a doctor's office, you assume a risk. <laughs> <laughs> Assuming that risk, because uh, we don't normally assume. Uh, yeah. Uh, I see this as least harm versus most good. The first mm -hmm. one is, it's they're both sort of negative. You wish people die, so why not do the least harm? And the second one is who gets the most good, but I don't have a good to distribute. Mm -hmm. That's my problem. So maybe if he wants to sell it, that'd be a different story. <laughs> but, and, and I have to go to business school, but... Okay, so that might, that seems like, in some sense, you have an, no entitlement, no ownership rights to Lydia's organs. Again, we're sort of partly trying to think of how we should redistribute ownership rights in the society, and if we go down the road of the numbers of the thing that matters, maybe we shouldn't give people ownership rights over their organs. But let me, um, so I'll, uh, since I know we're out of time and there is no answer here, and as I said, this doesn't issue in one answer, it's to put pressure, you know, the exercise is to put pressure on different ways of reasoning, and then to see whether, I mean, there really are two parts of our moral thinking. One is the numbers matter, and harms are bad, and we should minimize harm or maximize you know, well-being. And another is there's certain rights people have or certain dignity or certain way they should be treated that shouldn't be compromised no matter what the numbers say. And those are two elements of our moral thinking that different theories try and resolve that tension. And so because you can't resolve it just kind of in ordinary thought, you need to start reflecting on, well, how am I going to make these cases go together? And this matters because these are important decision metrics about not only social policy, but my own policy about how I want to live. So I hope I undid a little of lecturing on the Socratic method by showing you a little bit about how it works. <laughs> and, uh, and I'd be happy to talk to you for a few minutes after the uh, uh, this is over. <laughs> so. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.